I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. For years, Sean Togood had a dream. To move to Toronto. I love the city. Its energy, the noise, and in the media industry, Toronto is where the action is. But my house is in Whitby, 45 minutes outside of the city. Sean lived in Whitby because that's where his mom lives. Sean uses a wheelchair and in Whitby, his mom helps him with day-to-day stuff. Their house is mostly accessible. They have a lift that he can use to get in and out, though sometimes it freezes in the winter. Sean is pretty used to dealing with that kind of hassle. Like when he was a student, he had to cross the entire GTA to get to class because it was too complicated to live closer to school. Commuting to school in Etobicoke for the last few years took me two hours each way, every day. So while his classmates were hanging out and going to the campus bar, Sean was catching the train home. Because I spent most of my time in my room at home, right? Sean makes radio, and he works in theater. And that's all part of why he wanted to live in the city to have access to plays and auditions, and to us, actually. We met when he was the Doc Project intern. He told me how he had to give up radio gigs in places where he didn't think he could find a place to live. Sean was very ready to move out of his mom's house. But it's not that straightforward. He needed a place that has assisted living, basically where there are support workers who work in the building and are available if he needs them. He'd been on a list for assisted housing... For years. If this sounds familiar, we made a doc with him last summer about his search for housing. Well, last fall, he got the call from a place called Gage Transition to Independent Living in Toronto. And they said, Sean, we have an apartment. It's yours if you want it. Come on down. You know, for the longest time, that's all I ever wanted. His own place, complete with his own balcony, finally the chance to live his life with access to all of this stuff, everything he wanted went from being a car and a train ride away to being a few blocks and a short subway ride. I had this vision of, like, going to work and then coming home and then just uh, doing the same thing again. And it starts happening. Sean starts rehearsing for a play downtown. And then almost immediately... Well, you know what happens next. Unfortunately, that show had to be shelved because of the pandemic. That was the moment where I was like, oh, well, uh, my expectations for how this was going to go are clearly not what they are now. Sean stuck in his new apartment, cut off from the world, Again. 
what it makes me feel when I think about those people who are experiencing isolation for the first time. Now they sort of know what it's like to be forced to be a little cut off from society, um, whether they want to be or not. And so it's kind of like, welcome to the party, you know? This new version of isolation, where we're all alone together, from where Sean's sitting, it really is a party. I'm AC Rowe. This is The Dog Project. Today, two stories about sheltering in place. Coming up, writer Richard Kemick on how, now that his parents are selling the family home, he finds himself trying to let go of the place where his memories still live. But first, here's Sean Togood with his advice on how to stay at home in style. Here I finally am, on my own balcony. I love coming out here, even now that no one can join me. I've been thinking, living with a level of self-isolation, well, it's been a fact of life for me for a long time now. Let's just say that Canadian winters and wheelchairs are a bad combination. So often I've been forced to shelter in place. Sound familiar? Don't worry though, because over my 27 years of experience with wheelchair lifts that break down in the cold, sidewalks that aren't shoveled, and having to say no to a party because I'm not sure how I'll make it in or out of the house, I developed some helpful tips for staying sane while waiting out any storm. So. Stick with me, and we'll get through this together. Tip 1. Organize your space. In a world where everyone is moving at high speeds from one place to another, here's your chance to discover the benefits of stillness. Try setting up a workspace for yourself where everything is within reach. Ironically, I have a standing desk. It's high enough that I don't hit my knees on the underside of it, and it's big enough so I can fit just about everything I need on it. It has my smart speaker, my gaming system, which is a crucial item in a pandemic, by the way, my laptop, a TV, and the microphone that I'm using right now. I have just about everything necessary to while away the hours. And at a time like this, that's really what we need. And more than anything, be okay with this. Being productive just is impossible in our situation sometimes. So enjoy your beautiful setup and relax into an afternoon of gaming. It's okay. You're still a good person. Tip two. 
52. So you borderline your space. Now what? Connect, connect, connect. Yeah, I know many of you have discovered this one by now, but it's a lifesaver. As a person with a disability living in the city, the physical barriers that once existed for me are no longer there. I have the same access to activities as everyone else. Compared to my regular isolation times, these days are like going from the sleepy time motel to the penthouse suite at the Ritz when it comes to things I have access to. There are so many different ways to connect, I no longer have to worry about how to MacGyver my way up three flights of stairs to attend an acting class or a comedy club. Everywhere you look, there are free theater broadcasts, yoga classes, creative brainstorm sessions, intimate at-home concerts by your favorite artists. For me, access to online classes might be the biggest silver lining. Some mornings, it was tricky organizing accessible transit to get across the city on time for an 8 o'clock class. Hopefully, now that we know it's possible, maybe institutions can be more accommodating around distant education for anyone who needs it. Tip 3. This one is probably the most important. Of course it is. That's why I left it to last. Be adaptable. For most of my life, I've had certain expectations about how I wanted things to go. As I got older, I realized that as a person with a disability who is so reliant on outside help, that that is a bit of a fool's errand. And so, I've learned to roll with the punches. I've had a lot of people ask me if I ever get mad at my disability. And the answer is no. I learned a long time ago that there's no point in being angry over something you can't control. Whether it's uncertain bus schedules, support people canceling at the last minute, a global pandemic, you have to learn to adapt. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. Number four. Let me take you back to the balcony. Get out of your main space. If you can, get outside. This might just mean going out onto your balcony or into your backyard. Keep away from others, of course, but let the sun hit your face and just sit. When I'm here, I feel at peace. Thanks for joining me at my self-isolation station. 
I don't usually get this much company around here. Sean Togood. That piece was produced by Sean with Julia Poggle. Last year, before Sean landed his current place, he made a doc with us about his hunt for a room of his own and the hellscape that is navigating the housing system with a wheelchair. You can find that on our website. That's at cbc.ca slash docproject. We've also re-released that doc on podcast. So you can find it next to this one in your podcast feed. What if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. With everything that's going on right now, Things that were once mundane tasks have taken on this coronavirus gravitas. Like, where before, staying at home and binge-watching Netflix had a slightly shameful ring to it, now watching 10 straight episodes of Ozark and eating your way through a bag of Cheez-Its is doing a public good. Now, trimming your own bangs without the help of a licensed professional isn't something done after a bottle of wine to be regretted in the morning, but done pridefully and shared on all of the Instagrams. These days, you don't walk to the store to buy milk. You walk to the store to buy milk during the coronavirus. I'm being a ham, but everything has taken on this survivalist sheen. And for Richard Kemick, this upheaval, the mundane becoming monumental, it's made him nostalgic for a time in his life when things were so normal It never occurred to him to appreciate them when he was a kid in Calgary with his parents and his brother Tress in his childhood home, a place that seemed barely worth noticing until he realized he was going to lose it. Here's Richard Kemick. My father is a cabinet maker, and he approaches woodworking the same way he did parenting as something perfected in Gothic Europe that was now deviated from only for reasons of New Age laziness. An unrelenting exactness, a conflation of rigor and morality, and a deep-seated suspicion of daydreaming. Or, as he called it, sitting there with your thumb up your ass. Even night-dreaming I doubted if he partook in as I assumed he slept ramrod straight, arms across his chest, his mind at a utilitarian blank. The only act of imagination he enjoyed was that first moment a customer saw their new cabinets. These moments were always the same. Hands traced along the countertop's corners, the eyeballed appreciation of the cupboard doors, That first pull on a cutlery drawer, which extended so smooth and deep that the action was repeated again and again in an unwittingly sexual manner. You could see the exact moment when their minds wandered out of their skulls and into the future, 
their eyes swirling with the possibilities the renovated kitchen promised. Who knows if those customers still live there? Those houses could have changed hands six or eight times by now. I can tell you, however, that every kitchen cabinet still stands immaculate. I know this because my father made the cabinetry in the Kemic house, woodwork which will outlive us all. The Kemic house, after 30 years of ownership, is up for sale. Well, kind of. The current evisceration of the global economy has stalled the plans a bit, but once the bleeding stops, my parents will replant the realtor's sign with the gusto of American Marines on Iwo Jima. The crawl space has already been boxed up and donated, the office scanned and shredded, the memory chest unpacked and recycled. The writing, as they say, is on the wall. Not these specific walls, mind you. God, no. As teenagers, Tress and I were not even allowed to touch the walls, lest we smudge up the paint with our pubescent greases. And if our father caught us, either in the act or through forensic evidence, we would be forced to walk down our driveway, across the sidewalk, and to the street, which we were to then touch with our hand, all the while our father's silhouette watched from behind the French drapes to ensure our fingertips came into physical contact with the asphalt. The idea, I think, was to inconvenience us into obedience. Growing up, I was always jealous of my friends. Their fathers seemed so relaxed, so hip, so laissez-faire about the thermostat. They wore polycotton suits and had trendy jobs in departments like acquisitions or communications. And because of these jobs, their families were always moving, not so often cities, but houses, into one's bigger, better, ever farther into Calgary's orbital suburbs. These were the years I would lie on our living room's carpet and watch reruns of Friends, as my whole body ached with how far Calgary South was from where I wanted to be. From our split level at the end of the C-train line, I didn't even know where the closest cafe with upholstered furniture was. Come help me fix the hot water tank my father interrupted, turning off the television. You have to the count of one, he added, and then, without pause, said, one. I rose with tortured angst. I cannot wait, I said, to have a landlord. How was I to know that there would come a day when I would be desperate for the house? Ravenous for every scrap of its memory. Every birthday card, every screaming match, every washing machine buzzer, every commercial break. The light through the Venetian blinds, the smell of Windex, the mosquito-like whine of the table saw from the garage. Who will remember what we loved? I no longer pray to God, 
but I did when I lived in the house. Back then, I conceived of a god who was constant yet itinerant, one who roamed the earth like a hitchhiker, who watched sunsets from treetops, who heard our pleas through Discman headphones. Someone who planned our futures, righted all wrongs, and showed us that nothing was ever truly lost. Now, if forced to articulate it, the god I believe in seems a lot like the Chemic House. Something inanimate and immovable, one that envelops all reality, and that you move through like blood within a heart. Something that's hard to believe existed before your life began, and impossible to imagine no longer existing while you continue to. And isn't it possible, or even probable, isn't it a law of thermodynamics, that since energy cannot be destroyed but needs somewhere to go, that all of the astonishment, envy, glee, sorrow, rage, shame, and exultation, all of it has seeped into the woodwork and drywall, and after years upon years, a kind of sentience has formed. And that sentience is what's being sold, a thought which, now that I think about it, only proves my metaphor more. I moved out at 17, my brother Tress having left the year before. There's only so long a person can tolerate being micromanaged on how to unload a dishwasher before the suitcase packs itself. With Tress and me gone, thus commenced the Decade of Renovations. These renovations, however, were different from the renovations of my youth. Those renovations were about making the house ours, such as when my father ripped out every bathroom vanity to replace them with ones 20 centimeters taller, since our family all have the body shape of uncooked fettuccine. These new renovations, however, aren't born of making the house ours, but of making the house anyone's. These renovations are characterized by beige baseboards, dimmer switches on every light, and prying free the faux wood paneling. These renovations give the scent of a hotel, each room absent any whiff of artistic offense. During this time, when I visited, I'd have these daydreams of writing letters to the house's future families, telling them the truth of where they live why the hall closet doesn't have a back wall, where in the backyard the guinea pig is buried, how I'm sure that there is still, after all these years, clumps of dog hair in the bowels of the central vac, and, upon discovery, these should be treated like a relic from a saint. I planned to time capsule these letters in the dead center of the living room floor before the hardwood was laying over top. But every time I started to write, I'd turn inept to the point of illiterate, as everything I wanted to say turned to silt, crashing around me for an ungraspable moment before being pulled out to sea. Because isn't that another law of thermodynamics? Something about entropy, something about all of existence in a slow state of ebb, the universe expanding while we stay static. 
how to convey what your life meant to you. The best memory I have of the house is not something that happened, but something that didn't. Christmas Eve, 95, making my brother seven and me almost six. Our parents were in the kitchen as Tress and I got ready for bed upstairs. PJs on, our bodies quivered with anticipation. While my brother and I rinsed our toothbrushes, my father charged up the stairs. I saw Santa, he said, through the kitchen window. My heart fell right into my rectum. Our kitchen window faces west, as does my parents' bedroom window, to which the three of us sprinted to stare at the sky of our suburb through the soft gray of light pollution. He was heading over Bob and Bonnie's, my father said, and we craned our necks southwards. My palms suctioned against the glass as I searched, frantic for the sleigh. But we did not see it. A sparse snow began to fall, and the thought that my father's sighting was but a trick a life lesson in the pitfalls of credulity, slowly took hold of me, and my palms unpuckered from the window. But then, as my father continued to scrutinize the skyline, he said under his breath, For f***'s sake! And for the fact that he swore, and that he did so only to himself, the way he does when installing a cabinet, showed that he truly was searching, that he too believed, and my heart, which had elevated its way out of my colon, began to grow, swelling throughout my entire chest. You inevitably become one of the things you surround yourself with. Over time, even the hardest membranes soak into something permeable, and the sentience of the woodwork and drywall bleeds back into you. I think that also is a law of science. Osmosis. But is there a name for the opposite, of things separating at the seams, of putting a section of yourself up for sale? Google says it is called simply reverse osmosis, but there must be a term unto itself, something obscure and unpronounceable, something grade 12 students spend hours memorizing only to forget immediately after the final, when they retreat to the convenience store parking lot, smoke American cigarettes, drink pineapple liqueur, and glow with immortality. Life before the migration, before moving apartments every 18 months, before mass-made cabinetry, before identity becomes a process not of addition, but subtraction. Who will remember what we loved? No one. That's the point. That is the impetus that demands we love, an act of such servitude we'd never do it otherwise. What makes the Santa memory the best memory? is not an appraisal of its joy, but its clarity. Even now, just to think of it still summons an intoxication. My lungs unable to inflate, my scalp at a tingle, my mind reeling like water sloshed in a basin. 
The feeling that something of tremendous importance and beauty, of unsurpassable rarity, something of soul-changing significance was on the cusp of arrival. For we, surely, were at the landmark of our lives, our futures built of pure potential, nothing but promise, all within our very own home. Richard Kemick. That piece was written by Richard and produced by Kent Hoffman. On our website, you can find very 80s photos of a very 80s Kemick family enjoying the, upon reflection, precious simplicity of their family home. That's all at cbc.ca slash docproject. And that's it for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Kevin Ball, and me. Tahiat Mahboub and Althea Manassin are our digital producers. Our senior producer is Julia Poggle. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.